We're in a series uh, that we're continuing through the first couple chapters in the book of Daniel. Series is called, uh, is called In, Not Of. The Bible teaches us that when we choose to put our faith and trust in Jesus and we become a follower of Jesus, that our orientation to the world we live in changes. That prior to this, we belong to the, um, the king of this world, which is, the Bible teaches us, the ruler of this world, the one who influences this world, is Satan, the enemy of God. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we move into and under his authority and his rule. We enter his kingdom. And so we're taught that to be a Christ follower or a Christian, we are to live in the world because we remain in it, but we're not of the world any longer. We belong to God. And, uh, and so we begin to learn to follow him and live our lives for him because we're set apart for a holy purpose. And so in this series, as we examine the book of Daniel and, and uh, the, um, the historical account of an era in the life and times of the nation of Israel and of the world, we see some young men emerge in a time of difficulty. The nation of Israel goes under a time of um, judgment by God. If you want to see the tone that God had towards the nation of Israel, read the book of Ezekiel. It's a little intense. Uh, God's pretty upset with his people because they have been prostituting themselves to other gods. They've been following other gods and listening to other belief systems and moving away from, from God and the God of the Bible who created them. And he belonged to them. And so God is putting them under a time of judgment to correct them. At the same time, God is going to interact with one of the, uh, perhaps the uh, greatest king or ruler on the earth at the time. And so earthly kingdoms are what we see affecting the course of history. We see human power um, and it, at, as it interacts with, um, with uh, this earth and with those of us who live here and the human race. And we see these shifts in power and direction and control. And we see human beings at the center of it. The truth is, though, the Bible teaches us that God is the one who orchestrates the course of human history. He is the one who places kings in power. He removes them. He replaces them. It's God, really, who is orchestrating and controlling, in a sense, and directing where we go and what happens on this earth, and that there's a colossal spiritual battle happening behind the scenes, one which is virtually unseen to us. Though once you're clued into it, you begin to see it. And so this week, as we look uh, once again at what it means to live in the world but not of the world, as we look at the lives of some young Jewish boys who find themselves caught up in the politics of their time, the nation of Israel being put under a time of judgment about 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar rises to power on the world stage and amasses an empire called the Babylonian Empire. And he uh, begins to conquest other countries and he attacks Judah, the southern kingdom in Israel and takes captive tens of thousands of Jews and pulls them out of their country in what is called a time of exile. They live away from their home and outside of their religious and God-focused culture. They're thrown into a world that's pagan under a king who does not believe in God, follow God, or even know him. 
And though their lives are being affected by this turmoil, we begin to see, and especially this week, how God is going to work in and through them to do something bigger, to do something pretty remarkable. Our text today is Daniel chapter 2, verses 23 through 49. And again, as we've engaged the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, week one, Pastor Luke preached about their um, entrance on the scene in the Babylonian Empire, and they were put through a three-year training course, kind of a college education, and the, the, the things that Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to learn so he could employ them in his empire. And they recognized that in that environment, there were some things they couldn't do because they were in a world they didn't belong to. They belong to God. And so they said, we can't eat this food that the king is offering us. We can't drink the wine that's coming from him. It's not right for us. And so they fought to honor God with that area of their life. They stood apart and separate from the rest of the group of young men that were in training. And because of their willingness to stand apart, God honored them and blessed them. And they graduated school, top of their class, 10 times smarter than anybody else. How's that for performance? They did pretty good, and God uh, inserted them into the kingdom. Well, the king inserted them into positions of leadership. Well, last week we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream, a dream that terrified him. He woke up with his heart pounding, and he had to know what the dream meant, what the interpretation was. It was bothering him so much. Called in his wise men, and no one could tell him. They were unable to reveal to him what the dream was. And so he issued an order to execute all the wise men in his kingdom. Well, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in that group. And when the captain of the king's guard came to execute them, Daniel handled it tactfully and said, what's going on? And when he found out, he said, can I go ask the king for a little more time? And then he and his friends spent the night in a life or death prayer session, praying that God would take mercy on them and reveal to them the meaning of the dream. And God answered their prayer. And this week we're going to see that God had something bigger than just these boys' lives on the line. He was working for something greater. I want to encourage you that when you go through life and death challenges, when you go through the issues in your life, you see how the situation's affecting you. And it's desperate oftentimes. And we pray, God, please save me. Please do something. you got to do something here. I need you. But can I encourage you that I have the conviction, a strong conviction that God, because he's at work doing bigger things in the world, that even your situation, no matter how small and insignificant it might seem, there's something greater that is at play. This week, as Daniel receives the dream and its interpretation, he goes to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, and he says, Please don't kill all the wise men, right? I've got the answer. God has given me the answer. Get me in front of the king. And so right away, quickly, Herioc gets Daniel in front of the king. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, we've got a young man who can answer the mystery. And so in this moment, Daniel, concerned for his own life and the life of his friends, is going to play a significant role. And God's going to use him in a powerful way. Because Daniel, in this moment, introduces Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king in the world, to the God of the universe. 
Daniel chapter 2, follow along in verse 20, 27. The king, of course, asked Daniel, do you really know the dream? Do you know the interpretation? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. I really believe in this passage, in these few verses, we see the crux of how God is at work in this time doing something on a large scale. Yes, the nation of Israel is under a time of punishment, but as the sovereign will of God goes, God is working on a number of things at the same time. And though these young men have been thrown out of their lives, out of their homes, into a foreign land, a foreign culture where they're disoriented and out of place, and they've had to fight to establish some kind of reasonable way to live that honors God, they've been thrown into a life or death uh, mix, the turmoil of the world around them, and yet in the middle of this, God is doing something profound. He's going to use these young men because they have set themselves apart for God. They have fought to represent God and to say, we live in this world, but we're not of it. Then God is going to be able to use them to introduce himself to a pagan king who believes he's the most powerful force that exists. He's going to find out it's not the case. God punishing Israel, but also revealing himself to a pagan king. Daniel's interaction with the king here is pretty masterful. He has a prepared presentation and he does very well. It's a tricky situation. He's coming up against a powerful king who rules the world, who's fearful of nothing, who's had a troubling dream and wants to know what it means. And in the moment, Daniel has to say, hey, king, a couple things. One is, I want to remind you, you haven't been able to find the answer to this because you don't have the power to do it. Very respectfully, king, I know you're very powerful, but you couldn't, you couldn't deal with this situation. I just need you to, to, to understand that and track with me as I've given you the answer here. Secondly, I'm going to introduce you to a God who is above all, who is more powerful than anything you know about, and you're not familiar with him yet. And the third thing, here's how powerful this God is. He can tell you what's going to happen in the future. I know when I was a kid and I was learning about God and studying the Bible, I would say, you know, okay, God is all-powerful, right? And God is all-knowing, and he's eternal. Never had a beginning and never had an end. And I'd go, you know, I don't understand that. Okay, I believe it because the Bible says it, and I know it's true, but I don't understand it at all. And it kind of blows my mind to grapple with it. But then as I got older, I remember learning that Einstein was a pretty smart human being. He postulated that time and space— was a thing you could be outside of and that it actually had a shape like an hourglass. You could see it if you were outside of it. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know what? That's right. God created time and space, but he doesn't live inside of it. And then I started to realize this, that when God looks at our existence and we realize that he knows the future, how does he know the future? Does he have to look down through the portals of time and see the future? Well, no. When you understand that, Time and space is a thing that God created. He exists outside of it. You begin to realize that he sees all of it at the same time. Because time doesn't mean anything to God. It's different. 
and he sees the beginning of creation and the end of creation, it's all the same thing for him. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. That's how big the God that we worship is. And Daniel's saying, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a God who is so powerful. He can see into the future. He can tell you what's going to happen. You know, predicting the future is a little bit risky. Um, I feel bad sometimes for the folks that's their job to try to predict the weather, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. I look at my little weather app probably too much, and I'm like, what? How hot's it going to get tomorrow, you know? Oh, look, it's going to rain in a couple days. And then in 10 minutes, you know, it's all changed. (laughs) And I'm like, man, these guys have a tough job. Uh, A guy named Fiedler had some rules for forecasting. He said, forecasting is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. For this reason, he who lives by the crystal ball soon learns to eat ground glass. (laughs) Similarly, the moment that you forecast, you know, uh, you forecast the future, you know you're going to be wrong. You just don't know when and in which direction. (laughs) Another basic law of forecasting is if the facts don't conform to the theory, they must be disposed of, right? Forecasting, fortune-telling, which we see in this text. Fortune-tellers is kind of a new concept and a new word, but the person that has the ability to tell you what's going to happen in your future, we all want to know what the future holds. So we can be prepared against calamity. We can prepare ourselves against negative things, and we can ensure that our future is good and that the things that happen to us are what we want. And yet we don't have control of the future. But what an amazing thing to know that you can have a relationship with a God who knows your tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen in the future. He knows what you're going to face. He can prepare you today for what you don't know is coming tomorrow, but he does. This is the God that Daniel is introducing Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the earth at the time. He's introducing him to This God can tell you what the future holds. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he's revealed something very important to you. The future courses of human events on a large scale, what's going to happen in the years to come. So Nebuchadnezzar, in theory, hears about this God. Now, he doesn't know him yet. He doesn't know if he believes in him at all yet. But he has an awareness because of this dream and because he's been troubled by it, because Daniel's now claiming to be able to do the thing no one else could do. And really the power behind that is this God. He has the king's attention. After Daniel introduces the king to the God of the universe, the creator God, he has to deliver now on what he said he could do. And so next Daniel reveals the dream to the king. Daniel chapter 2 verse 31 Daniel says, in your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The king's like, yeah, thanks, Captain Obvious. (laughs) I was terrified by the sight. I'm the one that saw it. You're just getting it secondhand. An image glowing, shiny, kind of with the appearance light coming out of it. Something that... um, 
in their time, in their era, would have been foreign. The idea of something shining, right, with light coming from it, or at least the appearance, a brilliant, dazzling figure. It was certainly this figure and, and what Nebuchadnezzar saw as he saw it that terrified him and left his heart pounding. Daniel goes on, he said, the head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar's jaw probably dropped at this moment. He couldn't believe that Daniel told him in detail his entire dream. He's paying more attention all the time. Boy, what this guy said about this God who's able to tell the future, who gave me this dream, there's something, there's something going on here. Kind of an odd dream in a way, a little strange. A statue, a figure of a man made up of different types of metal. Kind of weird, really. But what is behind the dream and the meaning is really what begins to awaken Nebuchadnezzar. God is giving him a picture of the future. And as I said, it's a large scale with global significance. The statue represents different kingdoms who will rule the earth. And I want you to understand God's sovereign will at work here. He's orchestrating the course of human events, working the human race to a point where he can do something so impactful it will affect the whole world. And so first, he says, King, uh, the, the head is gold, and that represents you and your kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. Wealthy and powerful. High quality. What's going to follow is a kingdom not as, uh, not as uh, quality, not as good, but they will overcome and overthrow you. We know from history that kingdom, we even see it in the book of Daniel, is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, or what's known becomes known in history as the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire ruled for um, several hundred years. And they, <clears throat> during the reign of the Persians, Israel was allowed to return to their homeland. You see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they're allowed to return to the land and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, their city, and rebuild the temple. And so they're allowed to reoccupy, to move back home under the reign of the Medes and the Persians. Still a global empire, still one seeking to dominate and control the earth, just a little more benevolent in how they ruled. Daniel serves under both kingdoms, the Babylonian Empire and the Medes and the Persians. If you're familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, that happens during the Persian Empire's reign and rule. <clears throat> Next, the belly and thighs of bronze. We believe that represents the Grecian Empire, which was led primarily the historical figure we know of, you probably heard of, was Alexander the Great. His father, Philip, established 
a powerful, well-oiled military machine. And Alexander the Great, upon the death of his father, said, I'm going to continue to carry out his mission of world domination. And Alexander the Great sought to conquer the whole world. And really, Greek culture and influence, culture and language is what influenced the world far beyond the reign of the Grecian Empire. In fact, the New Testament, much of it written in Koine Greek, reflects that influence of Grecian culture. Finally, the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay mixture, we believe, is, was the Roman Empire, which came next. And the Roman Empire expanded, ruled with power and force, but also sought a, an environment of peace and tranquility and prosperity. Pax Romana was forced peace. And so the, um, the Romans ruled with a terrifying force, they invented crucifixion, which ultimately Jesus died as a result of that torturous form of execution. So they, they kept people under an iron thumb, but they also um, allowed people in their cultures to continue to practice their religion and have some form of their cultural expression. This, this kingdom, the Roman Empire, of course, was ruling and reigning when Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem in the small town uh, the small nation of Israel, which was subject to the Roman Empire. But then we have the rock, right? Not cut from human hands or by human hands, meaning of divine origin. And it hits the statue at the feet at the base and crushes it and turns the whole statue to powder and dust, such fine particles that even the gold was blown away by the wind. And it begins to grow and build to dominate the entire world. Jesus comes to establish a kingdom on earth. He spoke to those he preached to, especially the nation of Israel, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is right in front of you. You can have it if you will see it and be aware of it and recognize your need for it. If you walk in such a way that you're open to your need for God, you can access the kingdom of heaven, which is where God rules and reigns. And we know that Jesus didn't come at that time to establish an earthly kingdom. Book of Revelation tells us that there is a time of tribulation coming, great tribulation. And after that will be established a millennial kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign physically on earth. But right now, there's a spiritual kingdom. And God is ruling and reigning on earth and that kingdom is growing. Its influence is growing. You cannot understand what has happened, right, since Jesus was here on earth if you don't see the role, the nature of the spiritual kingdom, its growth, its impact, and the battle that is waging between the forces of evil, the devil and his armies, trying to stop and thwart the movement of God. The church is the vehicle where followers of Jesus, those that put their faith and trust in Jesus, come together to advance God's mission. But when we see things like Roe v. Wade reversed, right? We have an opportunity once again to honor God in our land with our laws. We see the kingdom of heaven having an opportunity to advance. Where Christians who represent God influence the world we live in. I know people have argued over the years, you can't legislate morality. You know, I've heard that argument. Well, what else do you legislate besides morality? I mean, that's the very nature of law. Of course we legislate morality. The fact that some young people today are saying, gee, 
Maybe we better think about our sexual behavior because we could get pregnant and not just easily end that pregnancy. Boy, that's a different level of responsibility. Yeah, that's what law does. It's supposed to do that. We see the kingdom of heaven, right? The influence of God begin to influence the culture when Christians like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego step into moments where God uses them to influence the world around us. This dream, this picture of what is to come, we are still living in. This rock that is the spiritual kingdom of heaven continues to grow. And we are able to be a part of it. Even to see the, this country be established and to lead the way in self-governance requires even more responsibility from us to live our lives in the world, but not of the world. I've been able to meet with some young people recently, young men especially that have families and have been trusted in Jesus, perhaps years ago, but not really been following him. And they're beginning to say, hey, (laughs) I don't know what's going on in the world. Things are getting shaken up and I need to recognize that I need to do something with this. I need to respond to God differently. And that's what happens when God shakes things up and gets our attention. I want you to understand that what's happening on our earth is the result of a spiritual battle for your heart and soul. Because if you will honor God and begin to live for him, then he's going to use you in what you think are insignificant small things for something greater, a greater plan and a greater purpose that he is working to accomplish in the world. God is sovereign over the earth. He has supreme power and supreme authority. He works out his will in and through individuals like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You are just like them. There's a significant moment that you and I live in. Will we step into it like these young men did? Will we step into it and say, God, I belong to you. Uh, I need to honor you in my life. There was a period of time when I was younger, you know, grew up in in a home where my parents set a good example for me and there was no cursing in my home. And then I got into, I think it was fourth grade and I had a couple friends who found out I didn't know any curse words. They just thought it was hilarious. And so they had to teach me, you know, all the curse words that were out there. And uh, so I got an education in that. Well, then I still knew I shouldn't use them. The Bible says don't, you know, and I'm like, okay, Colossians 3.8, don't let any foul communication come out of your mouth. You know, I know my life is supposed to honor God, so I'm trying to watch that. But then I get into junior high, and I start to feel the pressure to fit in, and I start to slip a little bit. Pretty soon I'm cussing like a sailor, like anybody else, right? And then there's times in my life I hit, you know, sophomore year, and I go, no, I'm going to live for God. I can't do that. And then I get in my senior year, and I go back, you know, back and forth with that struggle. It's a small thing. I'm not saying it's the biggest deal in the world. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that was a battle for me, something God convicted me about, right? And then I got into college, and I decided to live for God, and I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I get out in the world, and I'm working with people, and they start to notice (laughs) that if I get mad or something happens, I get frustrated, I use different words, and, you know, there are times I I got um, made fun of a little bit for that. But here's the thing. In moments of crisis, those same people knew that there was something different in my life, that I was living to a different set of standards, right? 
And again, not doing that perfectly. I'm not perfect uh, in any way. But just trying to give an example of ways in which we can dedicate ourselves to God. And when we do, people see that difference and they begin to notice there's something there. And when there's a moment, just like these young men stepped into, God will use you in the same way he used Daniel to introduce somebody to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God who knows their future. Following this revelation by Daniel to the king, the king bows down and worships him. I mean, he is blown away. He knows he's in the presence of supernatural power. He knows he's interacted in Daniel with someone who's far beyond or who has access to power far beyond him. And so he responds by elevating him. And really it's God who elevates Daniel's influence in the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel 2 verse 48, then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all of his wise men. And then he, of course, brings his buddies along, these guys that have packed together with him to live for God, to live differently than the world. And they're all placed in positions of authority, of influence in the kingdom. We see this pattern in the Bible quite often. When the church first started in Jerusalem, the apostles were preaching and they got thrown in prison by the Jewish leaders, right, in Acts 5. And, uh, and they threw him in prison and said, you guys stop preaching about this Jesus. You're making us look bad. An angel came and released him from prison in the night and said, get back out there and preach it. So they went out and started preaching again. I mean, what do you do when an angel says, get out there and start? So they did. Religious leaders came and got them again. What are you guys doing? We told you to stop. And they said that famous line, we must obey God rather than men. You and I have been placed in this world to represent God. You are sanctified. You're set apart. You're holy. You exist here on earth for a holy purpose. You're a part of a bigger story. You're a part of something God's doing, orchestrating the events of human history. He is seeking to influence people in and through you and I to see who he is and to want to get to know him and ultimately put their faith and trust in Jesus, a God who knows their future, who came to sacrifice himself for their sins so they could be made right with God and walk at peace with him I'm excited to see how God's going to continue to use you in this world as you represent him, as you live for him. God is going to continue to use you. And you may not see that moment. You may think, man, nobody's listening to me. Nobody's paying attention. They're just making fun of me. I just look stupid for the things I'm doing. Mm -mm. No, God's at work. We live in a time of shaking and your life is making a bigger impact than you think. I just want to prayerfully ask God with hum, uh, humility to have mercy on us and to allow us to continue to live for him and to see beyond the small things in our lives and to recognize the grand picture, the grand story that God has allowed us to be a part of. Jesus said often, the kingdom of heaven is at hand 
In the book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, 32 times the kingdom of heaven is referenced by Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, I think one of the greatest messages ever preached on this earth, Jesus indicates a couple of things. He's teaching people about the kind of attitude, posture they need to have to be able to access God himself. He starts off saying, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who recognize they're spiritually poor, they're needy, because they can access the kingdom of heaven. And he mentions a bunch of, a bunch of attitudes and behaviors and perspectives, and at the end he said, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The spiritual kingdom that Jesus establishes, established moves on. It's filling the whole world. Don't be confused and mistaken. Don't get distracted by what you see and what you hear. Behind the scenes, God's at work, and he's working to influence the world through you and me. That's encouraging to me. There's times that the things that happen and that I battle with seem difficult and hard, and they seem like they consume me. And yet, how encouraging to be reminded there's a bigger story. And even the hard things, sometimes the life-threatening things, God's really using and he's going to use as we continue to dedicate ourselves to him and follow him to help the world around us get introduced to him. God, we thank you for the powerful way in which you reveal your plan to us, the way you reveal your strategy to save the world. Thank you for drawing us in, pulling us into that story, moving in our hearts and minds, revealing to us who you are and what you're doing. God, I pray that you'd continue to help us mercifully, help us to see the bigger picture, to see where you're at work and what it is that you're doing so that we will be faithful to be a part of it, to be available for you to use us, to introduce others to the greatest kingdom on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.